morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. Gary, good to see you. Good to make the most of you. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. If you turn there, we'll read the verses that we're going to be looking at. Revelation chapter 2. So we're looking at the last book in the Bible, chapter 2 of that book, and we're looking at um, a letter to a church in modern-day Turkey today called Smyrna. I've actually been there in the church. There is a church there that still stands. Um, I think it's the only one of all the seven churches that is still standing, actually, uh, in, in the sense that there are people going there. Um, so verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. I have a good friend. Australia, who's a former student of mine and now pastors a church about an hour west of Brisbane. And he had a dream one day that changed his life. Now, we probably don't put a lot of stock in dreams, but sometimes dreams can be life-changing, and this one was. He dreamt that he was sitting in church down the front. This was a while ago before uh, he had his three daughters. I think at the time he might have had two. He was sitting down the front of the church, just down here with his wife and two daughters, and a gunman came into the church and came down the front and um, asked anybody who was a Christian who claimed to follow Christ to stand up. And in the dream, he found that he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He valued his life more than death, more than Christ. And he woke up from that dream, and that dream changed his life. And he came to Bible college, and he's pastoring a church in southeast Queensland and doing really well. That's what revelation is. It's basically a dream. I don't mean a dream that John had when he was sleeping a revelation, and it's designed to change our lives. There's a lot of debate over revelation, as you know, a lot of division over it. Doctrinal statements are built around it. Everyone claims to be right. I guess there are going to be some people who are disappointed when they get to heaven. But the goal of this book of Revelation is not to fill our heads with charts or calendars or end-time scenarios. I apologize if I've immediately offended most of you. But it's to fill our hearts with a person. And that person is Jesus. He's known throughout Revelation as the Lamb. 
is to fill our hearts with a person. And the goal is to change our lives. How often do you read Revelation through that lens? He tells us right in the beginning in chapter 1 that this is the goal, but we don't have time to go there. It was written 2,000 years ago to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is, as I've said today, Turkey. And times were tough towards the end of the first century, if that's when the book was written, which many think it was. Persecution was on the rise. One Christian we know from these letters had already been killed for his faith, and John himself, who was the writer, is in prison on the island of Patmos. And things are going to get worse, and they did get worse. We know that from history. Within 10, 20 years of John writing his letter, full-scale persecution broke out against the church. And if each of these churches are responding in different ways to the world around him, to the world that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so Jesus, if you've got a red-letter Bible, all of chapter 2 and 3 are in red letters, which tells us that Jesus is addressing these churches. Jesus addresses each of these churches separately in chapters 2 to 3. The whole book is for the seven churches, but he addresses each one separately in chapters 2 to 3, and we're going to look at the church of Smyrna. In verse 8, he says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and he says, these are the words of him. In other words, these are the words of myself. Jesus is referring to himself, who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. This is the same Jesus that John, who wrote the letter, saw in Revelation 1 verse 17. If you want, you can turn back to there for a moment. In Revelation 1 verse 17, John says, When I saw him, that's when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as those dead. He's scared to death. And then Jesus placed his right hand on me, John says, and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. The same words in which Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because evidently, there is something that is meant to take away. There is something in the words, I am the first and the last, that is evidently meant to take away our fear. What is it? Well, the description comes from Isaiah. And God described himself in these exact terms. God said of himself, I am the first and the last to Israel. And if you went back to Isaiah, his point, we won't do that, his point is fairly simple. I'll just read it to you as though I am God. I am God and no one else. Simple point. I know how to run the world and I am free to do so in whatever way I choose. I was here at the beginning before anyone else existed and I will be there at the end. There is nothing that has ever happened in history, nothing that has ever happened in history that has happened outside of my power, my control, my gaze, my watchful eye, nothing that has happened without me being aware of it or in control. 
of the universe as it happens. That's basically what God had to say to Israel with the words, I am the first and the last. I'm over all of history. But as human beings, our greatest problem, and that's each one of us sitting here, our greatest problem boils down to one thing, doesn't it? It's really, this is really the greatest, this is really my problem. This is really my biggest issue. I find it hard to accept that God is God and I am not. Now, you might automatically think, Alan, you really have a problem. Because you all know that God is God and you're not, right? But think about it. It begins in the garden in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, who take God's place when they identify what's good for them, and so they take it. And we've been doing it ever since. In fact, we don't need to learn it. You don't need to teach kids this. My youngest son, Caleb, when he was eight years old, he was learning back in Australia, learning Aussie rules football. They had a, um, a, a group come around the schools, and, and he was... So he went along and he brought home an Aussie rules ball and, and his homework for, for that was to kick the ball a hundred times. So you've got to hold it a certain way and you kick it like that. It's not quite as big as a rugby ball. A hundred times like that out in the backyard. I remember when he was doing this, I went out in the middle of it and said, Caleb, would you tidy up? Come in and tidy up your room, please. He said, no, that would not be good for me. <laughs> it's exactly Adam and Eve all over again, Right? That would not be good for me. This is good for me. That's what it means to take the place of God. And we do the same. Being wealthy, it is what is good for me. Being fit and healthy is what is good for me. Having this particular job is what is good for me. Lockdown is not good for me. That is called taking the place of God. And we do it every single day. Day. So our biggest problem, not intellectually, but functionally, is recognizing that we are not God. But God is God. And that's Isaiah's point. I am God. To which we might reply, well, if that's the case, then why did you not stop some of the terrible things in history? Why did you let this happen? Why, why, what, why are we in the mess we're in now? But do you see what's happened? We've immediately put ourselves in God's place. We've immediately found it hard to accept. Oh, yes, we're not God. So coming back to Revelation in the church of Smyrna, Jesus identifies himself as this God. Now, you might not like the picture that Isaiah painted of God or I've painted in terms of interpreting Isaiah. You might not like that picture. But you see, the picture's not quite complete back in Isaiah. The picture's not quite complete. When we, make to, when we come to the New Testament, what we read in John's Gospel, for example, the same John who wrote Revelation, is no one has ever seen God. But who has made him known? Jesus has made him known. So it's a little bit like now if we want to see God, we need to, I don't have glasses, but we need to take our, our Jesus glasses and put them on and say, oh, that's what God looks like. 
You see, you can't see what God looks like now without looking at Jesus. And what does the rest of the verse, verse 8, say about Jesus? After I am the first and last, what does it say? Who died and came to life again. The God who governs history entered history, was tortured, flogged, mocked, humiliated, died on the cross. In fact, I heard a very interesting paper just presented last December in Christchurch by a lecturer from Otago University, and he was doing some work on a passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is stripped four times. Just imagine that. It's amazing how we read the Bible and just glance over these things. Here's a grown man, Jesus, stripped four times naked in front of, who knows, four or five hundred men. How would you feel about that? Absolutely degrading. Absolutely humiliating. It's abuse. We'd call that abuse today. And the God who we read about in Isaiah, who's in control of all of history, has entered into history and gone ultimately to the cross, to his death. And you ask why? Well, quickly, look at Revelation 1 verse 5. Introductions to books of the Bible are always the most important um, things, and yet we skip over them so much. But Revelation 1.5 introduces us to Jesus, talks about him being on the throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now look at this. To him who what? Loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood. When we think of God, those are the two primary things that should come into our heart and mind. He loves us and he has set us free. He loves us and he has set us free. He loves us and he is a liberating God. Those are the two primary things that we should think about when we think of the God of the Bible, when we put on our Jesus glasses. And so he says to the Christians at Smyrna, This God in the person of Jesus who loved us and set us free, who loves them and has set them free. And he says to them in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. He knows because he's the first and the last. Nothing in history has ever escaped his notice. Listen to Isaiah Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. It's not hidden. God always sees. He always knows. A very dark period of my life, I was staying at um, a good friend's place back in Australia. Uh, I was in the middle of some very um, dark depression. And I remember uh, just kneeling by my bed one day in my bedroom, crying out to the Lord. And, and really all I said was help, 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 Lord. And 10 seconds later, the family dog, my, the door was closed. The family dog came through the door of my room and sat down beside me. Now, my mind went immediately to the prayer I had prayed. And I was a little bit ticked off at first 
Because I, I said, Lord, I asked you for help. I didn't ask for a dog. And to me, this was too, I don't know what you think, but to me, this was too coincidental for this not to be an answer to my prayer. But you see, then it clicked. What God had done for me, you see what he had done? What he had done was to say, Alan, I see. I hear you. I know what you're going through. And to prove it, I'll send a dog through the door. You see that? You could not convince me otherwise that that was from God. And so then my only question was what? So why haven't you done anything? Well, the answer was obvious, to me anyway, because I love you and I want to set you free. You see, God knows. He sees everything. And he sees always with love and a desire for freedom. If you don't think that way about God, then you need to change your thinking. Put on the Jesus glasses. See, Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows these Christians at Smyrna struggle to pay their bills. He knows that they do not have enough money for the little luxuries of life. He knows that they can't afford what many people can. That hasn't escaped his notice. But you see, these people aren't poor because of bad financial management. They are poor because they've followed Jesus. Let me give you a, a, just a brief example of what it was like in the first century for Christians living under the Roman Empire, which is, which is what these Christians were living under, the Roman Empire. So every now and then, Rome would hold a public holiday throughout the empire. Maybe it was the emperor's birthday, maybe it was some religious celebration. And so a parade would come down the street, right? And, and so you're living in Smyrna, for example, and, and how this would work, I've read about this, how this would work is that everybody would line the streets, they'd come out of their houses and, and stand on the street while the parade came past. And as the parade came past, you were expected to offer sacrifices, right? Because in the, in the ancient world, everything there's, there's no demarcation between religion and, and, and state. Everything is combined, Right? You worship, you worship, you, you follow the state, you worship the gods. And so the parade comes past and, and everybody is to offer a sacrifice. And you're a Christian in the church at Smyrna and you see the parade coming down the street and you've got a decision to make. What are you going to do? Because you know if you lay down a sacrifice, everybody along the street, your neighbours are going to see. They're going to see that you are, back in that day, an atheist. You don't believe in the gods. Oh, you're a Christian. You follow Jesus. And that's going to have some implications. It's going to have at least social implications. They won't want anything to do with you. It's going to have definite business implications because you cannot go into business in that time and you cannot go to business meetings and, and, and things without having to offer sacrifices, without having to say prayers to the gods. It may get you imprisoned, and at worst, it will get you death. And so the parade's coming down the street. You're a Christian. What are you going to do? That's the kind of world that these people lived in. 
These people are not poor because of bad financial management. These people are poor because when the parade came down the street, they did not bow down. I remember um, a few years ago having breakfast with a man in Nepal. Um, came round to the place where I was staying, and I was staying past this place, and, the, and a man came round and he was talking to me. There was going to be a big baptism the next day up in the hills, and he was, ta- and he was talking to me about uh, whether he was unsure about whether he was going to be baptised. And I kind of thought he's just a little bit maybe uncommitted, a little bit flaky, kind of just like, you know, back and forth, wishy-washy. Well, it turned out that after he left, the pastor told me, no, to get baptised will mean that he's cut off from his family business. It will mean that he's cut off from his family. You see, it was no small decision. He wasn't being wishy-washy at all. I mean, we decide to get baptised just like that. Life doesn't change. It's not, that, not the case in other parts of the world. You may, and, and he made a decision to get baptised, and, 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 and as a result, his life has changed. He's poor because of it, just like these Christians in Smyrna. And yet Jesus says to them, and he says to us, if you're in that position, yet you are rich. In what way are they rich? Well, let's turn to Revelation, the last chapter, second to last chapter of Revelation, verse 20, chapter 21. There's perhaps a few things we could say, but let's turn here to chapter 21. In chapter 21 and chapter 22 uh, is basically describing eternity. It's where God's people are going to be forever. And he says in verse 1, and, and this, is, this is the riches, the wealth that we have to look forward to. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Notice the direction it's coming, coming down out of heaven from God. So it's coming to earth. So what we have here is heaven on earth. Prepare, we're not going to be floating on the clouds singing harps, one eternal worship service, in other words. Life on earth as it was always intended to be. Heaven on earth, I call it. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throat saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is what you want to hear, isn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Imagine waking up in the morning and never having to be afraid of pain or sickness or death again. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. And look what comes next. I am the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, I'm the first and the last, like we read back in the um, chapter 2 to the Church of Smyrna. But he says it is done. The idea here is you've been on a journey. I think when I think of this, I think of back in my days as a teenager, and I went to Palmer's North Boys High School, I went to boarding school. 
And I remember those fateful days whenever I'd be at home for the weekend, not every weekend, only allowed six weekends a year, and those fateful Monday mornings when I would um, make the drive with my mum or my dad back into boarding school. It was on a journey, it was a journey, and then eventually, you know, finally you'd get there. But you imagine the journey of life. You imagine the journey of your life, everything that you've been through, the tears, the poverty, the depression, the relationship problems, the sin the heartache, the pain, and then one day God will say, it is done. Your journey has come to an end. And that doesn't mean the end in the sense, pack up your bags and go home. This means this is now the rest of your life. Welcome to eternity. Heaven on earth. And so Jesus says to these Christians at Smyrna, I know you think you are poor, yet you are rich. But it's not just the future riches that Jesus has in mind. You see, we're rich in the present because Jesus knows us. He knows our poverty. He knows our afflictions. He knows our hardships. He knows whatever it is that we are going through. We often say we know the Lord but we don't often say that he knows us. We often maybe think about when we see Jesus face to face and we'll look into his eyes, but how often do we think about the fact that he will look into our eyes? How often do we think about the fact that he knows us right now and he knows our circumstances, our every need, our every pain? But there's more. For these Christians at Smyrna, in verse 9, he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this doesn't mean that these Jews have misplaced their birth certificate and, and really forgotten that they were Arabs or something else. They haven't forgotten their heritage. They're actually Jews. But they're not God's people. That's the point. They're not God's people. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. In John chapter 8, some Jews said to Jesus, the only father we have is God himself. In other words, we are God's people. We are Jews. What did Jesus say to them? You belong to your father, the devil. And this is who these Jews belong to in chapter 2, the synagogue of Satan. And these Jews are making life hard for the Christians at Smyrna. Jesus tells them that the persecution is going to get worse. At the moment, they're being slandered, but soon they're going to suffer imprisonment. Jesus tells them in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will suffer persecution for 10 days. It's possible that it's not a literal 10 days. It's just saying this is going to be a short period of time. Regardless, they're going to suffer and it's going to be for 10 days, and it's going to be instigated by the devil. Of course, the devil will not do this directly. He will use unbelievers to do it. He has instruments. You see, remember, Revelation is written to these seven churches living in Asia, modern-day Turkey, and on the surface, it looks to everyone like persecution is coming from people. 
coming from people. People are making my life hard. The Jews are making my life hard. The Romans are making my life hard. But Revelation 12 explains that behind their suffering is the devil. Listen to Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon, that's the devil, was enraged at the woman, that's God's people, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. It's the devil that's behind their suffering. Remember Paul said in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The principalities and powers of this world. I don't know if you heard, I mean, I, um, on Facebook, and so I have a lot of friends in Australia, uh, but Victoria, the state of Victoria, where Melbourne is in Australia, are proposing a law. It's a draft at this stage that bans gay conversion therapy. In other words, trying to convert someone who's changed their sexual orientation or sexual gender and then conversion therapy is trying to convert them back. And um, the law has come into effect or is being proposed, it's in draft form, calling it uh, basically to prevent domestic violence. Now, to be fair, there are different views on this among Christians, so my intent is not to get into this specific topic. And, of course, we should, we should all be for stamping out any form of abuse, which is what the law is designed to do. However, the draft bill prohibits praying for someone, even if that person has come to you asking for prayer saying, I think I've done the wrong thing. Would you pray for me? It would be a crime. The bill is proposing to pray. Taken to its extreme, this could mean that it will be a criminal offence to preach against any form of sexual expression or orientation or to provide counsel. And, of course, you can, also, you can see where this kind of thing started with the Israel Falau saga. Australian Christian Lobby Managing Director Martin Isles has said that this is by far the worst and most flagrant attack on basic freedom this country has ever seen. Unless you've got your head buried in the sand, you already know that things are heating up. Who knows how far away New Zealand and Australia are from persecution? We are nearer now than we have ever been. And I'm no prophet. But you see, our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa already know this kind of life. They've been living with this for years. We've just been living in cotton wool here in the West. We think that somehow we are blessed. But it won't last for long. I don't know how long. But there are definite signs that it won't last for long. And it is closer now than it has ever been. And Jesus' encouragement is do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He's not talking about suffering for nothing. He's talking specifically here about suffering for being a faithful witness to Jesus. Jesus urges them in verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I'll give you life as a victor's crown. It's hard teaching, isn't it? Be faithful even to the point of death. That's hard in comfortable old New Zealand. I'm reading a book at the moment, and, and I'll resist the temptation to just wax on 
eloquent about the book because I do that. It's a great book. It's called With. It's just called With. Reimagining your relationship with God. You should get it. Every single one of you should get it by by end of tomorrow. Everybody should read it. Anyway, enough about that. Talks about the ways in which Christians relate to God. And it talks about how often we use God to alleviate our fears and our pain. You remember the Madonna song, for those of you who are that old? We are living in a material world. And we're all material girls and boys. Remember when it was a hardship to get up and change the volume or the channel on the TV? See, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Now we can virtually control our world from the couch. We can now access the internet by saying, hey, Google, or hey, Alexa, or whatever it is. We don't even need to go to the supermarket anymore to get our shopping. We can order clothes online. And did you know that you can get cars that park themselves? And what's the goal of all of this? To make things easier for us. To reduce our discomfort. To increase our pleasure. That's the goal. That's what all advertising is aimed at. To make you realize you need things that once you didn't even need. And this culture has infiltrated the church. God also, we are told, wants to prosper you. Consequently, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. We, we can't handle what's that all about? We would much rather hear Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. You see, it's increasingly difficult in today's world to live with discomfort, to live with boredom, to live with unfulfilled desires, to live with pain of those unfulfilled desires. Just reflect on that a little bit. It's increasingly difficult in today's world to live with the pain and frustration and unhappiness of unfulfilled desires. The whole world is about get your desires met. And there are so many different ways in which you can do it. You see, we are being conditioned to alleviate these things, the kind of things that make it hard, the kind of things in which we think these are not good for us. But as soon as we do that, we are playing God, thinking that we are the first and last of our lives. Imagine how difficult it was in the first century to refuse to bow down to the local idol, knowing it could mean imprisonment or death. I know a CEO of a shipping company in Sri Lanka, he's a Christian, and he asked, I was over there years ago, and he asked me to speak at a, um, at a lunchtime thing with many of his managers, some of who were Christians, and he wanted me to speak on bribery. And I spoke from Revelation, actually, because it's just a very applicable book. And the thing he said to me is, it hurts them to say no. In other words, it hurts them to resist temptation. 
That's it. It hurts. But here's the point. We are living in a culture in which is trying to take away that hurt. It's trying to numb that hurt. You see, we're actually faced with death every day, every time we attempted to give life to our unfulfilled desires. Every time we're tempted, we're tempted to give life to that unfulfilled desire because if we don't, it will feel like death. But if that's the case, how will we ever cope when things get serious and our actual lives are on the line? I've um, told this before, but probably none of you remember it. But anyway, it's um, worth saying again. I remember selling, we had two houses in Australia, one after the other, not at the same time. Um, and I remember selling our first house. And I was in the kitchen with a real estate agent, a good friend of mine, and we were signing the papers, you know, sign was going out the front, doing the contract and stuff. And I started to get teary, weepy. And I just thought, man, you've got to pull yourself together. You're not going to cry in front of a real estate agent. But you see, I was thinking about all this house meant to me. We'd been in there, we'd been in there 10 years. We'd raised our kids there. Two of our kids were born while we were living in that house. The other one had been 13, was 13 months old when we moved in. You know, it was more than a house. It was a home. And I just started to tear up when I thought about that. I still do it now. And God... I felt, spoke to me very specifically and said, Alan, if you can't let go of this house now, how are you going to let go of your life when the time comes to die? You see, and that's it for all of us every single day. We are faced with temptations that basically are saying to us, if you, don't, if you, if you give in to this, you will have life. And so we give in. Why? Because we are afraid of death. We're afraid of what the death feeling will feel like. We're afraid of the pain. See, the church in Smyrna, though, is is dealing with something a lot more significant. They're dealing with physical lives. Jesus makes a promise to those who persevere. He says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, the NIV has translated the Greek phrase here, crown of life. Some of your Bibles probably have crown of life as life is your victor's crown. In other words, they are seeing the crown of life here as eternal life. Now, I know, I don't know about here, but I know that's generally not a common interpretation within brethren circles, to see the crown of life as eternal life. But it is the most common way to understand this. And Jesus is urging the Christians at Smyrna to remain faithful, for eternal life awaits them the new heaven and the new earth. Or as verse 11 puts it, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Separation from God. What does it mean to be victorious? Well, one more verse, nearly done. Look in Revelation chapter chapter 12. Jesus urges his readers to be victorious, and he urges us to be the same. Revelation 12, verse 11. This is the chapter on the dragon, on the devil. 
And he says, they triumphed over him, over the devil. And the word triumph there is the same word victorious. They were victorious. So this tells us what John means or what Jesus means when he calls these Christians to be victorious. They were victorious over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I fear preaching on Revelation sometimes because I know of the debate and the division and, and, and the arguments that go on. But at the heart of this book is a person that we are to love more than we are to love staying alive. To not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. That is the heart of Revelation. As David said in Psalm 63, your love, Lord, is better than life. Every time, we are fa- every time we face temptation, we are faced with the decision to choose life offered in the temptation or life that awaits us. I have another good friend in Australia who went to McDonald's one day to buy an Angus burger. He went in and brought the burger, and he only lived five minutes away from home, so he took the burger home, opened it up, he was bitterly disappointed. So small, so he took it back. Went up to the counter and, and spoke to the guy at the counter and, and said, oh, this is pathetic. I, this, is, this is just not good enough. And eventually he, the manager came, right, spoke to the manager, and you know, he said, look, and the manager said, look, it's got everything, everything that the picture says. It's got the tomato, it's got the meat, it's got, you know, whatever it is in an Angus burger. And my friend said, yes, but it's not like the photo. And do you know what the manager said? Sorry to anyone who works in McDonald's. Do you know what the manager said? It never is. You see, this is how temptation works. Our minds and our hearts take pictures of what giving in will be like, of the photo. It's a photo goes on in our mind, in our heart. But you know the experience? It's never the photo. It's never what we envisaged. There is one photo that will be better than what we've ever envisaged. It's what we read in Revelation 21 the new heaven and the new earth. The day will come when there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness and no more death. And your journey will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Please, each one of us have no doubt heard you speak to our individual situations, and we pray that you might be gracious and gentle in leading us. Help us to remember above all else the central message of this passage of this book is the Lord Jesus. It's about his beauty and his grace, about his mercy and his compassion, about his love and coming to set us free. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) 